0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust.
2: What happens when we die or when we almost die? Hear from a neurosurgeon who had a near-death experience about his journey into the afterlife.
1: For those, you know, materialists who think, oh, when you die, your brain goes out, and then, of course, your consciousness goes to zero. Ha! Get ready for a surprise.
2: And meet a woman who had a shared death experience. Uh, What it was like feeling her mother's struggle as she was dying thousands of miles away.
0: I'm just really lucky. I, I think I'm really lucky. I got exposed to something that was so transformative for me. You know, because if you don't believe in it and then it happens to you, it's, I can't deny it. You know, I
2: can't deny it anymore. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. You've heard of near death experiences, right? You know, seeing the light going through a tunnel, maybe seeing a beloved family member waiting for you, feeling a sensation of love, of peace, of relief. And maybe you've heard of shared death Experiences where one person is actively dying and another person, maybe even hundreds or thousands of miles away, feels it, knows it. Turns out stories of near and shared death experiences have been told for thousands of years. It doesn't matter the age, the part of the world, religion, or non-religiosity of the person. These experiences, whatever they are, leave us grappling with reality unlike any other. Now, I know some people hear these stories and think, nope, no way, not buying it. These people are lying or hallucinating or some weirdness is happening with their brains. I don't know. And by the way, lady, why are you devoting a whole radio show to this? I pay your salary. Well, the reason I'm doing this show is I don't know what to make of this stuff. When I was young, I believed in God. And then in my 20s, I became a full-on capital-A atheist. But now, in my 40s, after experiencing a lot of stuff that, frankly, defies any worldly explanation, I i gotta say, I'm securely, insecurely, settled into the I-don't-freaking-know place. And that place is full of possibilities, And I like possibilities. So in honor of how the very act of seeking answers can bring you to life, everlasting maybe, today we're hearing two stories. One about a shared death experience and one about a near-death experience, or an NDE. You may have heard Dr. Eben Alexander's name. He's kind of a big deal. In the NDE world, he wrote Proof of Heaven, a neurosurgeon's journey into the afterlife, about his near-death experience in 2008 while in a coma due to bacterial meningitis. Now, don't be thrown off by the heaven thing. I know that's a loaded word. And frankly, what he says he saw doesn't sound anything like what I read in my Sunday school Bible. So I asked him, what did he see?
1: My journey, as I describe in detail in the book Proof of Heaven, Uh, began in a course of Earthworm's Eye View. I had no memory of my life. I had no words or language. None of my memories of Earth or this universe were there. It was an empty slate. And I think that was very important for some of the deepest lessons I was to learn. Uh, I was uh, basically conveyed from that very primitive course, subterranean early stage, the Earthworm Eye View, through a brilliant portal of light and music up into the Gateway Valley. Gateway Valley had many Earth-like features. It was much more real than this world. That's the shocking thing. People don't expect that, that this reality is murky and dreamlike. That reality is wow. Oh, my God. And, uh, you know, there were lots of other beings there. There was this incredible landscape of a verdant valley uh, that was lush with life, no signs of any death or decay. I was accompanied by a beautiful young woman on a butterfly wing. There were millions of other butterflies uh there was tremendous festivities going on below and uh in my early writings after the event i called them souls between lives and um that is uh the most extraordinary aspect of the journey many lessons were taught there and yet that was not my final destination because uh just as music had provided the portal that took me up from that gateway valley, i mean from the earth from my view to the gateway valley Likewise, all the festivities and joy and mirth I saw in this this gateway uh, were being fueled because up above were these swooping orbs of angelic choirs that were emanating chants and anthems and hymns that would just thunder through my awareness, this extraordinary richness, and they provided another portal, and I saw Uh, how time flow in this realm is very much a fiction. It supports the stage setting of the drama. Whereas in those realms, for example, uh, more than half of near-death experiencers talk about a life review where the main events of their life are relived in a very profound fashion. And that serves as lessons to us. But the reliving is not from their perspective. Interestingly, it's often from the emotional perspective of those around them who are affected by their thoughts and actions.
2: Did you ever see the TV show, The Good Place? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I loved it. So, so, you know about Doug Forsett who apparently during the character Doug Forsett who during a magic mushroom trip, you know, described the nature of the afterlife to a surprising degree of accuracy, getting it 92% correct. Are there any religions or um, concepts or theories that you think considering what you've experienced have gotten close to getting it right? Well,
1: I think that at in the deep meditative traditions of all the great faiths where we just pay attention to the message of the prophets and do not uh subscribe to the the uh you know scriptural and uh kind of dogmatic overlay because that's where all the conflict and confusion comes in but if we just focus on the deep prayer and meditative traditions they all focus on oneness kindness, compassion, that we're all in this together, and that is, I think, the most extraordinary lesson, and and also those the hardships, the apparent evil and darkness is there to serve as a gradient. You know, you can't have pure love and, and good isolated. It needs to be kind of in this juxtaposition because we live in a world of dualities, uh, of kind of wrestling opposites, and that's how Soul School works. But when you've been to that realm, the core realm was my ultimate destination. That's where all of this led, because the Gateway Valley was only a gateway. And in that core realm, oneness with God and oneness with all that is shared purpose and meaning are the nature of the beast. It was something I call uh, you know, a dazzling darkness. It's uh, where all the paradoxes are resolved. But the problem is our language is built in this dualistic realm of paradox. So our language does not do a good job of explaining the depth of truth of this unification and synthesis through the binding force of love that has become so apparent to near-death experiencers going back thousands of years. And the themes are always about this love and oneness, and that's what we need to recover.
2: When you talk about soul school, I like that. It, it, it feels like when I think about what the hell we're all doing here, soul school feels good to me. Do you know, what's the objective of soul school? Like, is there a graduation? Is there an end?
1: Well, it it turns out that we can have a tremendous kind of uh, illumination about all this through meditation and prayer and NDEs and shared death experiences, which are just like NDEs, but happen in uh, healthy, normal people. And I believe all of it, in this world, we can only kind of see the horizon of where it leads us. And that horizon, I believe, is the, the kind of goal of lessons for uh, humankind over the last many thousands of years is towards this oneness, this notion of, of being sharing the one mind and being uh, bound together through love and caring for each other. And beyond that, I'm not sure where it all leads, but But I would say the goal humankind has been challenged with for the last 5,000 years plus is this one of learning the oneness and connectedness. And, of course, it's not just about humans. Uh, This is about discovering the spiritual uh, coexistence of all life. And animals are in this, too. So you cannot pretend that they are not part of this process. In fact, I often think that animals in many ways have a, a spiritual richness that, for example, reincarnation is proven beyond any doubt in scientific studies of past life memories in children. Go to uvadops.org. They've uh, discovered more than 2,500 cases of past life memories in children suggestive reincarnation. You have to build that into the bigger picture to understand where this is all going. Anybody who hopes to have anything meaningful to say about consciousness in this day and era must accommodate uh, reincarnation and this much broader view of non-local consciousness. There's no going back The evidence all leads in one direction, and it's very good news for humanity because it's very unifying, and uh, it brings us together in this great synthesis of understanding.
2: You have said by 2028, no self-respecting, scientifically-minded, well-read person on Earth will doubt the reality of the afterlife and reincarnation based on scientific evidence. So why 2028, and what needs to happen on a grand scheme, do you think, for this to happen?
1: Well, 2028 20, was kind of arbitrary. It's because in the year 2018, I started publicly saying in all my presentations that look, if you if you study the evidence, uh, there's really no other conclusion. Consciousness is fundamental in the universe. We've never known anything other than the inside of our own consciousness. And even though we, our brain and mind are very good at fooling us into believing that we're witnessing the world out there, never forget. What you're actually witnessing is a model within mind that seems to have a lot of fidelity to some world out there, but there are plenty of psychological experiments and the results of quantum physics itself that tell us, no, 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 there is a top-down causal principle of all emerging events. The mistake that some uh, in materialist science uh, make, and there's a beautiful quote from uh, uh, Werner Heisenberg, who won the Nobel Prize in 1932 for his work in quantum physics, He said, the first sip from the glass of natural sciences will lead you towards atheism. But at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. And he knew exactly where this was headed, as did many other of the founding fathers of the field. Ultimately, all of reality is determined by top-down causal principles from the mental layer of the universe. That's the layer you get to in an NDE. That mental layer is that assimilative layer. It's probably better called a spiritual layer, because ultimately all of the mental layers converge into that spiritual notion of oneness and God force. But the more you understand about modern quantum physics, uh, the more you get where this is going. And the reason it's so important is because we keep thinking all that out there is out there as physical reality. But in fact, what's what we're witnessing is nothing more than consciousness using the incredible quantum complexity of our brain to kind of project a brain, body, physical reality from the mental layer in this top-down causal fashion. And so it's never been more than those perceptions. Uh, I love how John Wheeler, one of the most renowned quantum physicists in the 20th century, he was the head of physics at uh, Princeton University. He came up with this notion of the participatory anthropic principle. And what he was pointing out there is that nothing exists until it is observed by a sentient being. And that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where this gets really astonishing. He was onto something. And in fact, when he made that statement, he compared himself Uh, To a a theologian, an Irish uh, theologian who had lived 200 years earlier, George Berkeley, who had said, to be is to be perceived. And Wheeler was basically admitting that quantum physics drives you inexorably to a realization that mind is what governs this universe. That's why, for example, the reality in our lives is mind over matter, placebo effect through the power of belief. Of knowing. And this is why meditation and centering prayer can be so helpful in recovering health in every way. And way. I'm
2: with you on that. I, I just recently started learning about meditation myself, um, and it's been remarkable. I, can I ask about other planets? Follow me here. I have an idea. If we don't go poof into non existence, I think it makes sense for there to be reincarnation, not just on planet Earth. But on other planets, other realms, other who the hell knows, because it's a big universe and we probably don't even know the thousandth of it. What do you think about that? Is, do you think that Earth is the only place we come back to, to learn?
1: Not at all. In fact, I, I mentioned that in Proof of Heaven. Uh, I mean, I had a bigger description in the original manuscript. It got trimmed down by the editors to make this a palatable book to the general public. But I do, the, still there's text in there that refers to these vast civilizations that I witnessed. In fact, some of them as far above us as we are beyond earthworms. And of course they have long, long, long ago, completely escaped the shackles of the apparent time and space limitations that we think as material beings in a very, very primitive understanding of the universe. We, we feel limited by time and space. And yet there are what I saw as billions of civilizations and many have far advanced beyond us. I think that in general, the patterns of information You know, there's an old saying from Plotinus, the philosopher of of ancient times, who said, like attracts like. And in many ways, you know, people often talk about vibration and resonance, uh, and in many ways, uh, that's part of the package. And so our, our soul, our kind of inherent being, has a certain resonance that will resonate with other uh, aspects of this uh, grander consciousness. Uh, and some of us have the ability to resonate you know, with much more uh, kind of different levels than what we encounter as humans on Earth, but others uh, are a little more limited. Uh, but this is why I find meditation and opening the mind to be so very powerful once you realize that the mental layer of the universe is kind of universal and it's completely outside of time and space. So the entire big bang of the physical universe occurred within consciousness. And this is something that... Uh, uh, really kind of opens the door to tremendous possibilities. And that's where I think exploration of consciousness can be so important because it shows us many, many possibilities. And especially in this era where when we're discovering, you know, in neuroscience and philosophy of mind, uh, in quantum physics, uh, this primacy of consciousness, and and you look at the brain as a filter. So the brain, as we discuss in living in a mindful universe, the brain is not even the storage place for memories, You know, that's really the last nail in the coffin of materialist neuroscience. If memories are not stored in the brain, then what's going on here? But it is completely a construct within mind. And it is, uh, you know, the quantum physics, the reason it's mystified so many for so long is they kept expecting that consciousness was generated by physical matter, by the ion channels and synaptic clefts in the brain. Well, yeah, they play a role, but they're not Newtonian billiards. And thats it's not a causality in the way we normally think of it. There's a far more profound, top-down causality. Our entire existence is something that purely mental. And the more we explore that and come to play with it and enjoy it and embrace it, uh, the more we realize we're far grander beings than just something that lives in this physical body and only exists birth to death. We've been here before. We'll be here again. We're all part of that one, one great mind. There's a great book for your listeners, I would also recommend by Dr. Larry Dossi. It's called One Mind. It's a very profound uh, kind of explication of the oneness of mind shared with animals, shared uh, across humanity, much bigger than we normally think. And that's where the modern science is headed, because all the evidence points in this direction.
2: That's Dr. Eben Alexander, author of Proof of Heaven, a neurosurgeon's journey into the afterlife. Find him at EbenAlexander.com. When we get back.
1: No longer is the ego and the me-only-me of the way the world works. It's all about the higher good and being here to serve and help others.
2: More of my conversation with Dr. Alexander. Plus,
1: I didn't know whether I was going
0: crazy or having some kind of hallucination. I just,
2: after I got over the shock of it, I felt calmed by it. Meet a woman who experienced symptoms her dying mother was having from thousands of miles away. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about shared death experiences and near death experiences. When we left off with Dr. Eben Alexander, author of Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife, we were talking about his near-death experience. It happened in 2008 while he was in a coma due to bacterial meningitis, and it became clear hearing a story about oneness with the universe and his visions of a beautiful, peaceful place over yonder that he no longer fears dying. So I asked him, when he thinks about his own death now, what does he think?
1: I'm not in a hurry because I feel like I've got other things to do, but, you know, there's absolutely nothing to fear about. It's actually liberation from the prison, from the shackles. And for those, you know, materialists who think, oh, when you die, your brain goes out. And then, of course, your consciousness goes to zero. Huh, get ready for a surprise. When you die, you are freed up from the shackles of the physical brain. And I'll tell you, there's a very good example in modern scientific study that makes that case beautifully. And that is the study of the influence of certain serotonin 2A psychedelic drugs, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, LSD, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which is the active principle in ayahuasca. Uh, there have been papers uh, of studies done that the first publication I knew of was in 2012, Robin Carhart Harris and colleagues at Imperial College London, they use psilocybin. And when they use functional MRI and magnetoencephalography, which are very powerful techniques to look at the uh, cells in the brain and their neural activity, people under the influence of those uh, substances do not call them hallucinogens because these are not hallucinations. These are visions of a, a bigger reality. And what happens to their brain? The brain goes dark. There is no part of the brain that increases in activity under the influence of those substances. That has been borne out in paper after paper. People are shocked. Materialist neuroscientists struggle. What in the world? How do we explain this? In fact, Christoph Koch uh, wrote an article in Scientific American. He's the head of the Paul Allen Neuroscience Research Center in Seattle. And in his article, in responding to that first Carhart Harris paper about psilocybin, said, shock of all shocks, your brain under the influence of these substances goes dark. And it's because the brain is not creating the experience. The experience comes from a much deeper level of this uh, this one mind, this pure consciousness. And that's where uh, it, it starts becoming very interesting because uh, you know materialist science is at a complete dead end when it comes to explaining such phenomena. That's why uh, many materialist neuroscientists say there's no such thing as consciousness. It's a complete illusion. They're ignoring the fact that the only thing they've ever known is the inside of their own consciousness. It's like asking a fish what it's like to be in the water. What water? Well, guess what people? Uh, We are, you know, ultimately this consciousness is it uh, and uh, it's the only thing that exists. And that's good news because it opens tremendous power to us as we start to understand how we can glean information from that level of primordial mind. And not only that, how we can put it to use in our best interest for our highest and best outcome for all involved. And that's the important thing is no longer is the ego and the me, only me. Of uh, the way the world works. It's all about the higher good and being here to serve and help others. And that's where indie ears will tell you, uh, you know, as they have for thousands of years that we're all in this together and it's, we're connected through that binding force of love. And this is a lesson that our horribly polarized and kind of egocentric, knee focused and diseased world needs to hear this kind of awakening helps all of us make more progress and all of humanity can do that through this awakening
2: well for those listening who are like okay this sounds reassuring <laughs> this sounds like you know if i feared death maybe it maybe it's like what ram ram das said you know death is like taking off a tight shoe it's a liberation it's a freedom that's exactly right What do you think are some takeaways for people who may never experience a near-death experience, who who will experience just a a death experience, not just a, but a death experience? Is your message basically like, fear not?
1: Fear not. And not only that, but the greatest gift of near-death experiences and similar to spiritually transformative experiences and their scientific study is not oh, comfort around what happens when I die, because I know it's not oblivion. But it's actually a deep and profound uh, kind of uh, uh, litmus test, an indicator of how we should act and view ourselves and our relationships with others, every choice we make, every moment, every breath of this life in this world. That's where NDEs are so important. I I came back from my own journey realizing that some, some of the world's greatest problems don't come because we don't love our neighbor or our enemy enough. It's because we don't love ourselves enough as the true, sacred, divine agents of love that we are. And the more we love to the world and share that love, that deep lesson of NDE's and, and all of our expressions uh, in actions with other, others around us, the more it comes back to us in this beautiful, loving fashion, because we're basically resonating with our soul journey. We're maximally kind of transforming in this material lifetime based on our spiritual journey that is far, far bigger uh, than, you know, any kind of human lifetime or anything in in the physical world. So that's where the real power of NDEs comes through and is helping guide us in how to live these lives and how to view ourselves it's just a real gift of the deep meditative traditions of the great faith going back thousands of years that they came to the same answer, oneness of love. Uh, And now the science of consciousness is proving the same thing beyond any doubt. Once you study NDE, study the reincarnation literature, uh, study the healing literature, the power of mind over matter. Go to uvadops.org to learn a whole lot more about one of the biggest scientific groups on earth, the University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies. Where for six decades plus, they've been studying reincarnation memories, uh, near-death experiences, all manner of non-local consciousness. That is, parapsychological phenomena like telepathy, psychokinesis, distance healing, the power of prayer, precognition, the ability to know the future, uh, pre-sentiment, where you can prove that our autonomic nervous system knows the future. The evidence is already all around us. And uh, that's why this world needs to wake up now.
2: Well, Dr. Evan Alexander, thank you so much for talking with me.
1: Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on and uh, you covered a lot of territory. Very good job.
2: Related to near-death experiences are shared death experiences. That's when say your mother in Oregon Begins actively dying, and you, a therapist in England, start choking. That's what happened to Annie Cap of Canterbury, England. She's the author of *Beyond Goodbye*, an extraordinary story of a shared death experience. I asked her to describe what happened that day.
0: I started gagging. I felt like I was being strangled um, and, and suffocating. And for some reason, I had this gurgling sound. And the gurgling sound, as it ended up, ended up being. My mother was dying in her fluids of her lungs. And I was having this very strange thing happen for about 20, 25 minutes. And I I was working with a client. I was doing um, counseling at that time in my life. And uh, I had to ask him to leave as soon as I kind of twigged what was happening. I I realized as I tried to clear out this um, congestion, whatever it was, I was downstairs in my downstairs bathroom and I was coughing up like a cat coughs up a hairball. And I was trying really hard to clear it, thinking, you know, I've got to go back to work, I've got to help this guy, I've got to get back. And then as soon as I realized I couldn't clear it and I started, I I work upstairs normally, started climbing my staircase, I just had this overwhelming, terrible feeling that it was my mom. So at that, at the time of the choking, I didn't know that it was my mother, but then I, I realized I was climbing. I had to get rid of this guy. <laughs> I felt really bad. Cause it's like, you must leave. My mother's been in hospital and I'm concerned for her. I need to call her. And I, I got rid of him and it was a, a long ordeal, but um, because I live in, a, in the countryside and we had sheep in the field, I had to open up the gates for him and do all this stuff. And I'm running back to the house as fast as I can thinking, I hope she hangs on, you know, because we knew she was, not long for the world and was um, going to be passing, but we didn't know when. So I called her up. Um, I called the hospital and my sister answered the phone and she was by her side and told me that the nurses had just said that this was the last this was the last few minutes of her life. And um, they had called all my brothers and sisters, but not me because my sister didn't have international dialing. So my mom reached out for me. This is
2: 2004? Yeah, 2004,
0: January 2nd basically, my sister put the phone to her head. And I said, you know, it's okay, you can go, you can, we can let you go. And or, you know, you can go, we'll be okay. And I love you. And I said, goodbye. And then she died. Right then took her last breath as I said, goodbye. So yeah, yeah. So it was, it was very, I don't know, I think about it every day. It's just, it's always with me. And it's it's yeah i'll probably start crying sorry i haven't talked about this in so long so it's nice of you to interview me
2: i'm so glad to and you're welcome to cry i've it's good for you i think but um yeah definitely after it happened what sense excuse me now i'm clearing my throat i'm like mom (laughs) (laughs) no hairball (laughs) just in the context of this interview maybe i'll I'll call my mom afterwards um (laughs) After it happened, I I know that you, at the time, you didn't really believe in God, and you didn't have much Mm -hmm. spirituality, didn't have a lot of faith in an afterlife. And um, I'd like to hear about what started changing in you, and then what started happening after your mom died that continued changing you? Well...
0: I couldn't ignore what what took place. So first off, it was just the enormity of the experience. Um, at the moment, you know, I was angry. I hadn't got a ticket and couldn't fly out there. I was grieving in a way I've never expected. I, I, um, I was sobbing constantly and I couldn't sleep. And when I did find, you know, I'd be crying when I did fall asleep, and I'd wake up crying. And I didn't think you could cry in your sleep, but you do. And and i I just was devastated by the loss of of this woman who I find um my mom is amazing what what was is amazing and um so I, I just I had just huge loss and then what happened was is I started feeling her presence around me so that that's really what kind of took place at the time I had no idea of shared death experiences I hadn't heard of empathic deaths I didn't know what it was you know i didn't believe in god i didn't believe in guardian angels i didn't believe in afterlife you know i kind of hoped there wasn't a hell but <laughs> but i didn't i didn't know yeah and so my husband over here in england and in europe they give you compassionate leave so my husband had like four or five days off to help me through the grief and he worked in germany and i lived over here he had to go back to work after four or five days. So he had to fly, fly to Germany and I was doing my normal thing Monday through Friday alone and seeing him on Saturday morning and he'd fly off at 4 a.m. on Monday morning. So as soon as he left, the most, I think, horrific thing happened. And it's it's and now it's really a special thing, but at the time I was so terrified. I was in my bedroom and I started crying in my sleep and, or, or half asleep and i felt a very firm hand on my head stroking me and of course i like went out punching and I, I thought that somebody had come into the house and that i was going to get attacked so i i had what they call an after-death communication from her basically and, and i didn't know these terms but i i did end up researching her, researching it some seven years later when i just couldn't stop thinking about her all the time so so it happened repeatedly so as soon as i'd fall back to sleep and start crying this thing would touch me again. Right. So, so I'd feel this, this hand and, and after like three or four days, I came to realize it was my mom. You know, I mean, I, I, I knew I wasn't going to be attacked and it started to comfort me. So until he came back from his week away, she was stroking my hair like she did when I was a small child. So she always did that when I would be upset, she would put me in her lap, put my head down and stroke my head so she she was doing it, and and I I didn't know whether I was going crazy or having some kind of hallucination. I just felt really really. After I got over the shock of it, I felt calmed by it. So that sort of stuff started happening, and I wasn't sure do I tell my husband or does he kind of think I'm crazy? So I you know I I told him he's my best friend, so I told him everything and. And so then other things started happening. So when he was around to witness it so that I I couldn't deny it basically, she started leaving uh, bobby pins around the house and she had very dark hair and I have very blonde hair. So these bobby pins showed up, um, first showed up exactly where I was seated when I had the gagging experience. And then one showed up, my mom liked coffee as well as as cigarettes, but (laughs) one showed up by the coffee maker in the morning, and my husband and I went to bed together. Get up in the morning, and there's the damn bobby pin sitting by the coffee maker. So it's like he found it, and I found it, and I said, oh, you know what's going on?" It's not like some. It's not like he was having an affair and some woman was in the house because we were together, right? <laughs> so, and
2: you're in the countryside, so
0: you'd see her coming.
2: Yeah, I'm it good. Would, it would. So yeah, so it's just
0: stuff like that started happening, and it just it went on from there. It just got it got more surreal and more. Uh spiritual and I started feeling like I was hearing people speaking to me. And so I, I actually really considered, you know, some if something was wrong with me. Right. Like psychologically. Yeah, like do I need antidepressants? Is it electrolytes? Is something going on? And then my husband said, No, there's nothing wrong with you. These things are happening. We'd wake up with the room smelling like her smoke and and just all sorts of stuff. So it got pretty intense for a while, where it felt like somebody had opened up the the the, go- the door to all the ghosts, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah, like they have a portal that suddenly opened.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's kind of it sounds funny, but if you've ever watched um Ricky Gervais in Ghost Town, it was a bit like that, because it wasn't. Then my mother wasn't the only person coming to to talk to me, so it was like very strange. So I ended up getting involved in a spiritual development circle where you learn how to meditate and do all this stuff so I could figure out what was what people thought was happening. And then I started researching and I found out this is a really
2: normal, common after effect to a near-death experience. So you check a few boxes that near-death experiencers check.
0: I checked um, of, of a questionnaire by one of the leading uh, near-death experience researchers. I checked 21 out of 24 as if I'd had, a, as if I'd died. So all that stuff that you think doesn't happen, it happens to people who've tipped their toe into the other after the other side, you know, the afterlife. And I didn't I never saw the white, you know, I didn't see the you know, tube you might go up to or the white light or anything. But apparently when she connected to me and linked with me, um, the experts say that I somehow was brought over into that other dimension along with her just even for those 20 minutes or those couple seconds when she died on the phone. I don't know exactly when I was tipping over because they say that um, when people are dying, their consciousness is no longer inhabited in the body so that it becomes loose and disconnected from the body and it can travel where they think.
2: So do you think that if you hadn't had been thousands of miles away, if you had been in the room? like your sister was, she wouldn't have needed to do this. And then you wouldn't have had this. And therefore you and I wouldn't be talking.
0: Possibly. Um, Or maybe I would have saw something because they say that people, uh, I was interviewed by a number of people myself. Um, There's a lady named um, Penny Satori, Dr. Penny Satori. She was a, um, like an ICU emergency you know a nurse in the in the intensive care unit and she she was with a lot of people who died and she's she now she's got a doctorate because she did research into all these experiences and then she researched other people's experience sitting by a dying person and they they say that um, it usually has to do with your connectivity with that person so the fact that my mom and I were we were like girlfriends versus mother-daughter in our you know, years. And so, you know, we really cared about each other. And so it may have happened to me, but differently, maybe apparently if you're sitting with the person and you have a bond with them strongly, you might actually see the light and you might see their body rise out of themselves. Um, So I think I would have had something happen with her knowing what I know now. I think it's, it's about the connectivity of of the individuals, not just the proximity.
2: So do you think Assuming that your siblings did not experience what you did, are they kind of feeling left out?
0: Some of them. Yeah. But one of my brothers was in the room when she died. I didn't know he was there until the day later when I spoke on the phone that he was sitting there when I was speaking to her on the phone. He actually saw something and he, he won't share it, but he said it was beautiful. And that, you know, that's pretty amazing. So he, yeah, he, he saw something lovely
2: was Annie Cap. She's the author of Beyond Goodbye, an extraordinary story of a shared death experience.
0: After the break. I'm just really lucky. I, I think I'm really lucky. I got exposed to something that was so transformative for me.
2: I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. We spent the first half of today's show talking with a neurosurgeon who had a life-changing near-death experience. And now we're hearing the story of Annie Cap. She's the author of Beyond Goodbye, an extraordinary story of a shared death experience, where she wrote about what happened between her and her mother, Betty. It was back in 2004, thousands of miles away from where Annie lives in Canterbury, England. Betty began actively dying in Oregon. Annie in the middle of a therapy session where the patient began to cough and choke, and when she got a flash in her mind that she needed to call her mother, well, she was right, too. When Annie's call came through, Betty was coughing, taking her final breaths. Annie's sister put the phone against her mother's head. Annie told her she loved her. and she could go. It would be all right. And right there on the line, Betty died. I asked Annie... What does she make of all this?
0: Well, for me, you know, I've had a, a life-threatening illness the last two years I've been fighting cancer. And the thing that is interesting is I had people say to me, are you afraid of dying? You know, if, if the cancer doesn't go or what have you. And I said, you know, I'm I'm not afraid of dying. That's something my mother changed in me. She gave me this wonderful feeling that we continue and love continues and consciousness and even your personality, I think, continues into the afterlife and you go on and do other things and choose to do what you want to do maybe reincarnate or i don't know do special things and so i think what she gave me was this gift of, of certainty that we continue and love goes on and it is extremely comforting and if i can give that comfort to you I, that's really was my goal in writing my book in the first place was to comfort people who might be experiencing things and don't know what's happening or having someone die and not have any Feeling like I experienced, I'm just really lucky. I I think I'm really lucky. I got exposed to something that was so transformative for me. You know, because I, if you don't believe in it, and then it happens to you, it's. I can't deny it. You know, I can't deny it anymore.
2: And even me listening to the story, I would have to go through it to truly, truly for myself believe that there's more
0: that it happened. Yeah, yeah. No, I can understand that too, and I. I would have been the same way, you know, before it happened to me, I would have thought lovely Annie, wishful thinking. How nice for you, nice. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you little delusional girl, <laughs> you know, but I had it happen and I'm lucky for that. So, and I'm sure I think if there was any kind of ulterior motive of my mother, that could have been it because she knew I didn't have a face and that I, at the time I was scared of dying. I thought you rotted and that worms ate your brains and I had a very dark Very dark, very sad, thinking that when you're dead, the lights get turned off and that's it. And then you sit there in the cold and yeah, it was terrible. So I think, you know, who knows, maybe she saw what was happening and saw how beautiful it was and went, I'm going to go over and show Annie at something, you know, I wish I could, could have seen what she saw. That's the only, only regret I have is I would have loved to have seen, you know, the lovely lights, you know,
2: it sounds like maybe you will.
0: Yeah. Hopefully
2: not soon. (laughs) Do you still connect with her? I I do. Yeah. I
0: think about her daily. I think she would really love to, to know that, actually, that she lingers with me so, so well. But I do sometimes in my head speak with her and I feel like she's responding so that works for me. And matter of fact, just last week, I was telling you, I was waiting for my scan results and I was looking up to the sky and I'm saying, mom, you know, I really love you. And yes, I'd love to come visit, but I'm not ready yet. You
2: just have to wait. (laughs) If you could sit down with your mother and have a real conversation with her now, you know, it's been 10 years since your book came out.
0: 17 since she died. Yeah. Yeah.
2: What do you, what would you like to say to her?
0: I think I just thank her, you know, I give her the massive, most massive hug I could give her and just thank her for changing my, you know, I'm not afraid anymore. So that's what a blessing.
2: Is there a way that you can sum up? Like, I want to ask, what do you think is happening? Like, what do you, what's the arrangement that maybe we who haven't been through this understand. I mean, a transmitter, receiver, is she, is your mom everywhere? Are you everywhere? Like what, what have you learned or what do you make of what this says about our consciousness and our consciousness as it goes through our, the mortality of our own bodies?
0: That's a big question, but you know, I'm not the scientist doing the research, but what the, what they believe is that we, that the brain acts either as a filter or as a receiver, like a television set, picking up the signal from, you know, from the the television wa- waves being sent, broadcast. So that the belief is that, that that's what's happening with our brain and that we, that the consciousness, so who we are, our soul, whatever you want to call it, the who we are is not really within the brain. It's outside the brain. That's just the filter or the receiver and that the information is, Everywhere, and that apparently you're what they call non-local. So it's a quantum physics kind of thing. Where if I'm thinking about you, where you're physically in Connecticut, we're we're mingling our our molecules on a molecular level. Apparently, there's actually that we're touching each other in some way, be it a you know invisible way. So I I do believe that somehow the biggest things we're going to learn in the next twenty to fifty years, maybe even hundred years, is the capacity of what our consciousness can do because there are people you know there's people that are used with the military and with the police force to find lost people or to do remote viewing and find out you know where they are on the the war front and there's all these things that are used that supposedly don't happen but if people are using those people for for you know commercial gain or for military gain that they do believe it they just don't talk
2: about it yeah if there's a profit off of it it's got to be working Yeah, yeah. So
0: I I really think I don't think we know really what we are and what we're capable of. I think I don't I don't know that we're going to know the question you've asked. I don't know whether in our lifetime, whether we'll have that kind of understanding. But I do think we just continue. And I, I don't know. I don't know if we continue as long as we want to and we have choices, whether we we come back and try another like almost like an acting thing, like you're in a stage play. But I I just think that energy just continues and love continues. So that's all I can say really is that it's all, it's all pretty profound stuff until you have, I mean, once you have it happen, if you have something happen for you, something, it doesn't have to be somebody dying, by the way, just any kind of spiritually transformative experience. It could be that you're walking amongst the Redwood forest, you know, in a trip to California and you have something happen that just, markedly changes you so it doesn't have to be death you know these kind of transformative experiences can be very pleasant things they don't have to be around around grief
2: I appreciate that there's still a lot of I don't know in you I haven't heard you talk about God or or heaven by name like or so I appreciate that there is still, still sort of like I don't I know more than I did but there's still plenty I don't know which is kind of the fun of it Right. I mean, if we did know, then what? What are we doing here? Yeah, and if you
0: if you think exactly, and some people think too that you you create what happens for you after after you leave this particular physical plane, that what happens for you is different anyway. So perhaps people follow whatever their belief system is. I don't really have one, so I don't know what's going to happen. You know, (laughs) I mean, I do believe
2: we continue. Maybe other planets too. Yeah, who knows. Who knows? Other realms we aren't even aware of. Because if you think about it, there have been, you know, over 100 billion souls have, have been on planet Earth as far as we, we draw a line at Homo sapiens. Yeah. Um, so where, where are they now? Yeah. Where were they before? There will be more, obviously. And
0: are they still right next to you? They might still right be here. You know, you just don't know. They just can't see them.
2: Leaving you bobby pins. yeah
0: yeah even me bobby pins maybe it's an alien not my mother (laughs) you never know (laughs) who knows i like not knowing though yeah no i'm i'm very open to things but i i i do feel there is something good and benevolent that's the sense i have there's something benevolent about it all that is all about love heaven i don't know about but love yeah
2: i can see how that would be easy to feel even with the trials and tribulations that you've been through and that I've been through, but I also think about like human beings who are suffering uh, in ways that it would turn us inside out to imagine, let alone experience. And how and can it- there be
0: a benevolent being? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't think it's a white man in a big robe. There's, but I think there's some kind of benevolence out there. Maybe it's this whole thing people talk about the universe. I, I don't. I haven't got the answers. I just feel better than better for experiencing what happened with my mom i just feel i'm just not afraid that's all i mean that's the big takeaway for me is i'm not afraid
2: and i'm glad we i'm glad we don't know i'd rather not know but i do like seeking it yes so thank you Annie cap thank you so much for talking with me i enjoyed it immensely thank you audacious is produced by me Jessica Severin-Dimartinez and Katie Tolarski, with help from our interns, Abby Levine and Dylan Reyes at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. And plus, you can listen back to shows featuring stories like how a woman communicated her way out of locked-in syndrome using blinking, what it's like to use a therapy baby to cope with depression and anxiety, you can hear them all at ctpublic.org slash audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for leaving that review on Apple Podcasts. That's how the unfeeling podcast machine knows how to favor our show. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at KionWolf. And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.